Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to Moving to Live. Today we have part two of our podcast with Sam Callen. Sam has an interesting background starting way back in the University of Georgia, transitioning around the southeast up to Wisconsin, eventually ending up in Colorado Springs where he has in the past worked for the USOC, worked for USA Cycling, and is currently the USA Fenching Coach Educator. I think the interesting thing about Sam as an interview is as a coach, not only does he have the background in the science as an exercise physiology, uh, excuse me, exercise physiologist, but with the undergraduate degree in psychology and a master's degree in counseling, he can also address the psychological aspects and understand that it's not just numbers and physiological measures that are important when you're considered in coaching. And for somebody who's involved in coaching education, I think that's invaluable. Sam, thanks for taking time to do part two with Moving to Live. It's great to be back with you, Ben. So we talked in the first interview about how you got all the way from uh, Athens out to Colorado Springs. We found out that uh, both of us got our degrees or got where we are in large part to Dr. Andy Doyle, who is at Georgia State. Uh, you've encouraged me that at some point in the next two or three days, I'm going to drop Dr. Doyle an email and thank him because he probably doesn't realize the influence that he had on my career. And I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't taken time at a conference to spend 10 or 15 minutes with me. Yeah. He's a great guy. So you mentioned in the first interview that you were peeking in the lab doorway when they were doing some testing leading up to the Atlanta Olympics. And as you said, it was a great time to be in Atlanta and in the Southeast area because you had the opportunity to see elite level athletes and watch Olympic preparations in the Olympics. At that point in time, you said Dr. Doyle helped you. You did something that was atypical for many exercise physiology students when they do an internship rather than saying, I'm going to do the cardiac rehab route, or if there are more, uh, 
applied basis, you, you may be the person who goes and works in the health club or the yep. corporate fitness. You said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go and I want to create my own internship and I want to intern with Jeff Galloway who has a international reputation for 30 plus years preparing basically people with no marathon experience to run, not only run marathons successfully, but also enjoy running them. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I guess my question is: clearly, you had the coaching background. You went out to Colorado Springs and you got hired by USA Cycling. At that time, were you doing triathlons or were you involved in cycling at all, or did you just have the bike that you used to commute to classes at Georgia State? Um, one, I never commuted my bike to Georgia State because it's in downtown Atlanta, and I wouldn't have probably survived. So. Um, Atlanta, not the most cycling-friendly town that I've lived in. Um, at, I really – at cycling, I'd done some cycling. I'd done some triathlon, so I was familiar on the bike. I'd started doing some mountain biking and actually had – before I got hired, I'd already signed up to do the Leadville 100 mountain bike race, uh, which is this crazy race. Leadville is one of the highest cities in the United States. It sits around 9,000 feet. It's a mountain bike race that takes you out to 13,000 feet, and you come right back down. So it's 100 miles, 50 miles out, 50 miles back. And so, um, so I, you know, and I, as a physiologist, cycling is a great sport to study because you can – especially now, you can measure so much stuff on the bike. We have power meters that tell us exactly how much power you're putting out, and you can use that for training, and it's, it's revolutionized how we train cyclists. And so from a physiologist standpoint, it's, it's really like our pipe dream. And, but I really had the physiology background. I was not a bike racer, um, but I came at it from the sports science standpoint. And uh, my then boss, uh, Steve Johnson, who later became the CEO of USA Cycling, was himself a PhD. He's been a professor at Utah. And so he was looking for a sports science guy who understood cycling well enough. And I, I checked that box. Um, and then kind of with my job now, similarly, I found experts who were experts in the world of bike racing that I would call on to do coaching clinics and to help me develop materials. And then I focused on the physiology and some of the sports psychology side of it too, although I farm that out. I'm not an expert in sports psychology, but I know enough to be dangerous. And um, so I, I was a so my background there allows me to kind of have my toes in various worlds. And as you said, um, it, it's a really mental game and particularly at at the higher level you get, it becomes the, the physiology is is not very different between the athletes. Um, if you put them in a lab, you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other from lab results. But a lot of times it's that mental, you know, either toughness or resiliency or the stick to um, that really becomes the difference between the people who rise to the top and people who 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 don't. We, you know, I, I knew many athletes that in training would put up these incredible times or you know, lift an incredible amount of weight, and then they would get in the competition, they would just crumble. Um, the pressure would get to them. They weren't very good at dealing with it. And so I think that is – you're looking at that whole athlete and not just that they're a set of numbers, which took me a little while to, to change. I was really a numbers guy when I when I first started out, and I, I learned more and more. And I learned some of this from Jeff is, is is that person on the other end that you have to deal with, and they're not just a, a spit out of a, of a computer printout uh, part of that. So – um, and, th and I think that relationship between the coach and the athlete is 
is, is so important. I've had the privilege of talking with a lot of coaches of Olympians, and I don't know that they know any more than anybody else does about coaching. But the one thing I, I did notice that they're really good at understanding the athlete and that relationship and figuring out how far can I push them today or do I need to back off today and be in that flexibility part of it. Joe Vigil is a coach that first really kind of drove that in my head. He's um, a well-known distance running coach, was at Adams State over here in, North, or in Colorado for a while and coached uh, uh, Dina Castor amongst others. And um, he really, to me, helped me understand better that art of dealing with the athlete. And I know that most of the runners that Jeff Galloway coaches are like you and me, recreationally. They do it for fun. They, yep. have, they have other jobs. How big a transition was it for you? You did that as an internship and clearly decided that, yes, coaching is definitely where I want to go and where I want to focus. How different is it to work with somebody who isn't an elite athlete versus at the various national governing bodies in the USAC when you've worked with these athletes? For some of them, this may be a lifelong dream or something that if they don't place at a certain level, then they're not going to get funding to be able to continue in their sport. It, it's a mixed bag. I, I think at the high, one of the advantages at the highest level, if the person is truly a professional and their job is to race a bike or to run, the great thing is they don't have a job that they have to go to. So their whole day is dedicated around the runs or the bike ride. Um, so they get up in the morning, they have breakfast, they go train, maybe they do their stretching, they can come back, take a nap. Naps are really awesome things. Um, come back in the afternoon, do another workout, do another session. They go to bed at night, and you know they're eating and getting massage to that. It, it to me, in some ways, it's far more challenging. You've got the person who's working 40, 50, 60 hours a week and want to train for a marathon or a half Ironman or uh, you know a century ride, because now you've got to juggle. Okay, when are you going to get this three-hour bike ride in or this you know hour and a half run? And then how how are you going to recover from that? When you maybe have to come home to you know family, and so in some ways, actually, the recreational athlete can be a bigger challenge for a coach than the professional athlete who, ah, you know, my whole day is devoted to running and you know training and recover, train recover, train recover. Um, and it, you know, I found a lot of the recreational athletes I worked with that that goal of qualifying for the Boston Marathon is you know, is deeply important to them. Their livelihood doesn't depend on it, but they're highly invested in that. And it, it means as much to them, you know, relatively speaking, as maybe that person who wants to make the Olympic trials or an Olympic team. Now, obviously, the the external rewards are very different and the recognition you get are very different. But the folks who are, who are doing that are, are highly invested in wanting to do it. Um, you know, and but then the professional athlete, like you mentioned, has that pressure. If I don't do well in this race, um, I get dropped from the national team, and that means my funding goes away. And you know, we dealt with that with athletes who either weren't putting times up uh, or or results up. And you know, luckily this job never fell on me. Um, our national team coaches or our program directors had to go to them and say, you know, you, you're not meeting the standards. We're you know, we're removing you from the program. And sometimes we had a resident program here at the training center where the athletes actually lived on complex, fed, housed, and everything. And if they didn't perform well enough, you know, 
you're not part of the program anymore. Now you got to go find your own lodging, your own housing. You got to pay for your food. You know, you got to pay for coaching, and you know, hopefully you'll work yourself back into that. But that that can be a pressure cooker, and I think that's where the sports psychologists that were on staff uh, with us really helped out, and where that person can help out. You know, the athletes who are in that transition. Um, so it, it's a mixed bag. I, um, you know, I, I found I, I found as much joy. Um, I, I was I did a little bit of stuff with uh, Dina Castor. She was Dina Drossen then, and it was a thrilling day when she won a big medal in the marathon in Athens. But I got just as big a thrill when one of my athletes called me after she had run a marathon and had gotten a Boston qualifying time. And um, and I was actually much more closer to being part of her success than I was Dina's success by far. Um, but that the thrill was just as great to see both those things happen to people that I had had some contact with. One of the things that I know is becoming much more prevalent or what we're able to do with the increase in social media is feel like we know a lot of these elite athletes, even though we really don't. We may see what they want us to see or yes. we may see what they post. And you've had the opportunity to know a, a number of elite athletes and work with them. And I think one of the things that might be interesting for you to talk about, are there some athletes who are at the elite level who recognize that, you know, there's no chance that I can win this competition or there's no chance that I can win an Olympic medal. But man, if I can make it to the Olympics for me, that's my achievement and that's my gold medal, so to speak. Yeah, I, I certainly, th I, you know, Athletes at that level, I, I think, are always striving and thinking I, I can. If, if everything went perfectly right on a day, then you know I can win it. But I also do know of athletes, even backing off on that, we had – so at USA Cycling, we had a resident athlete program at one time. It's, it's no longer in existence. But And for a lot of athletes, um, so we, on the track with a velodrome where things are timed for the most part, so you know if you – Wrote a time in Lehigh at the Lehigh Velodrome in Pennsylvania, and you, you know, wrote a certain time, then that would get you on a radar and maybe get you an invitation in. And I know for a lot of times the people who that was it. Once they hit that one, then they were really content, and it was they weren't motivated necessarily to make that next step. It didn't seem like, and that's one of the things when you set a goal and you achieve that goal, the next thing you need to do is set a new goal. Um, sharing my own experience in that, my goal was to work with elite athletes um, out of graduate school, and I got that opportunity, you know, which is very rare. And so, but once I had that job, I realized, okay, I could be complacent and do this, but what's my next goal? And so, the athletes who are really successful, they set a goal: I'm going to make the national team. Great. Okay, I'm going to compete in the Olympic Games. Great. Um, I'm going to, you know, win a medal or finish in top ten. People, you know, we get hung up on medals, and I'm guilty of this too. But you know, a top ten finish sometimes can be the best finish the country's ever had in that event. Um, you know, I, I know the dark days of distance running in 2000, where we, you know, sent one man and one woman to the Olympic marathon in 2000, and now we're contesting for medals, um, you know, regularly and winning medals in distance events um, because we had people had that goal of not just wanting to get there. Um, but back to your question, I think that um, there are people that that is the goal is to make the Olympic team, and and somewhere deep realized, you know, they know what they're where they rank in the world. And 
you get those miracle people who come out of nowhere sort of thing. They were ranked you know, 30th in the world, and everything goes right, and they win or, or get a medal. Um, th- those, those are great stories. Um, they're the exception and not the rule for the most part. And um, so anyway, yeah, I, I think making the Olympic team is a heck of an accomplishment. And in some sports in the United States, I mean, making the Olympic team is sometimes, you know, the hardest part of winning a medal. I mean, I think about in swimming and, you know, at one time in the 100 meters in track and field, you know, if you made the team, you, you're almost guaranteed getting a medal because you're beating the best in the world anyway. I asked that question because the weekend before we're doing this interview, we had the world championships in track and field and the U.S. steeplechase women uh, went went one and two, which was totally unexpected. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a track and field guy at heart, and um, I I saw that result on on Twitter because I was at, at work or doing something when it happened, and I wasn't surprised that Emma won a medal, um, but but Courtney coming out of nowhere was really a shock. Particularly, I think she ran like a 15 second personal best or something. Which, if you're going to peak and run a personal best, World Championships is a really good time to do that. Um, part of it, and uh, you know, I, and I remember even races in track and field of, of Jenny Simpson winning, you know, winning the World Championships, and the look of surprise on her face was pretty amazing. Um, I, I've I've been in the lab when Jenny and Emma were both being t- tested. Um, my old boss invited me in one day when they were down here um, in the lab to just kind of watch and hang out. And um, you know, they were uh, they're they're nice people, which is really pretty cool to see in Olympic athletes as well of high caliber athletes as being just genuinely genuinely nice people. So. So that makes it even better to see Emma win when you know she's a pretty nice person. I think you hit on something a, a little bit earlier when you talked about that your goal was to work with elite athletes and then you continued to set additional goals with what you wanted to do. If you talk to a young, prof- many young professionals or a student, uh, they say, you know, well, I want to work in the NFL or I want to work with elite level track and field athletes. And clearly your path that you described uh, – starting at Georgia State is you had a little bit of luck in that you were sticking your head in the door and somebody yelled at you and said, come help. <laughs> yeah. But you took advantage of that opportunity and built on that with the volunteer or the internship with uh, Jeff Galloway. Somebody wants to do something where they work with elite athletes. And I know having known a few elite athletes and talked to them and trained with them on their easy days, they have people coming out of the woodwork who are, who tell them all the time, Work with me, and I'm going to make you a yeah. champion. What's yeah. your advice for somebody to get their foot in the door other than some luck and being in the right place in the right time? Yeah. You know, at one time, I would have been very dismissive of the luck concept, but I read a book recently. It, it, it was about luck, and and I think there is some luck involved in that, and I think there's also some taking advantage of it. So I appreciate your your take on that. It's similar to mine. Um yeah, I had nothing to do with the Olympics being at land in 1996. I was living in Wisconsin in 1989 when the announcement came. And I was excited, but I, I, that wasn't on my radar that I would be involved in it. Um, for people wanting to get involved, I, I get that question an awful lot. And, you know, I, I think probably the, the the recommendation I would make to people is to – um, you know, it kind of depends upon the path you've taken. You know, around an athlete, there are a lot of people who are who are there as their support system, supporting the coach and the athlete. There's athletic trainers, there's personal or, or uh, physical therapist. 
you've got massage therapists, you've got nutritionists, you've got sports psychologists, um, you know, and other sports may have additional um, things is that, you know, if, if you are in one of those fields is, you know, is there a club close by or is an athlete close by where you can go and meet with them and the coach? And, and I, I would say it, it sounds really bad, but you got to pay your dues and maybe just, hey, can I help you out in any way? And, you know, if you're a, getting a PhD in psychology and you want to be working with sports psychology, go to them and, and just say, I'm, I'm here to help you out. And um, it, it can be – and I would say don't think of any task as too menial. I would mentioned this earlier, and I, I don't know if you kept it in or not, but um, that menial task that, I was, that Walt Thompson asked me to do was I, I was cleaning blood off the floor during this lab test. So, Ben, as you know, you take finger sticks for lactate samples. This happened to be a kayak athlete. And so in between when they would stop and they were taking a blood sample, there'd be blood on the floor. And I was taking the spray bottle bleach and cleaning it up. That was my introduction to Olympic world. And one of my bo- the one of the people who later became my boss at the USOC said that one of the things he liked was that wasn't beneath me to do that. I said, that's, that's all I was qualified to do at that time was to clean blood off the floor because I, I had just started as a master's student. Um, so finding that group, uh, finding other professionals, I think, in your field that are working in that to begin that networking part of it. Um, I, I think a sports nutrition is one. Mainly because I've been talking to a few sport nutritionists lately. Of if you're a sport nutritionist, then one of the things is find that sport nutritionist who is working with the group that you want to work with, and introduce yourself. You know, if you're at a conference, go up and you know if it's you know Nancy Clark or somebody like that say, hey, I'm really interested in this. How do I do this? You know, reach out to the people at the USOC, and and they're super busy. They're probably not going to return your email within 24 hours um but reach out to them and say you know i'm i'm here in atlanta georgia and i'm interested in sport nutrition working with athletes what advice can you give me um and, and again making those contacts at, at conferences if they're there presenting come up afterwards introduce yourself to them and keep in mind they get a ton of people doing that because you know if you're in sports nutrition you want to work with those teams um, professionally, you know, if there's a if there's a minor league baseball team in your town and you're really interested in baseball, then go to them and say, how can I help you out? Um, what can I do? Find a strength conditioning coach if that's your thing and and, you know, volunteer to help out with doing, you know, supervising the training session for them. A lot of times those those level teams are looking for help and their budgets are tight. So, you know, they can do that. And I hear from other people. That's how they. That's how they got their foot in the door. Um, If I can recommend another podcast, you know this one, Scott Caulfield uh, does one for NSCA, and I listen to it regularly. And he asked people, how did you get involved in this field? And a lot of the stories I hear was I went and volunteered at my college team. You know, if you're a university student, go over. And that's a great opportunity to get your foot in the door, um, you know, with the collegiate program. Even it, it could be Division Three all the way up to Division One, but get that real life experience because what you, I think, what we learn in classes and books is I, I don't want to dismiss that, but I think it's also the application that looking at I'm dealing with a human being and I've got 12 people on a team. I got 12 different personalities. 12 different approaches to how I'm going to talk to them about nutrition because, um, you know, I've got, I've got to individualize it for those people. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's paying your dues, um, and you're not going to start at the top. Uh, you know, if you're really inter- interested in the coaching world, then find those athletes to coach and just start coaching somebody. Co- coach your uncle. You know, coach, coach your cousin because you want that experience of learning how do I deal with that person in a real life situation, not just a textbook where, you know, one of my frustrations with these cookie cutter online marathon training programs is that they assume everybody responds the same and they don't take into account that you're going to get sick, you're going to have vacations, you're going to have deaths in the family, um, you're going to have, you know, workload that does it up and that training doesn't adjust for that at all. So then what do you do? And I, that's why I always tell people hire me because I'm the person that's going to adjust that for you, and you just go about your business of of your life and do the workouts. That's, um, that's part of it. That's an interesting comment on the cookie cutters. Uh, one of the podcasts. I'm not sure if it'll be aired before or after we air yours. Was with Samantha Wood, who's also in Colorado Springs. And a question I like to ask people who interview endurance coaches or people who coach endurance athletes is if you take a recreational runner and you recommend, or they come to you and say, you know, I'm running three times a week. I'm running about 10 miles a week. I want to run a marathon. The question I like to ask all the coaches is how long should it, will the training program take? Not so they can just finish the race, but so they can finish it and have an enjoyable experience. And you can correct me if you have a different opinion on this, but pretty much everybody I have asked either on the podcast or not has said at least six months. Yeah, I um, so I I I don't I won't disagree with that. I I have a hard time putting a month on that, but I would say six seems like yeah, that's a good ballpark in there. Again, taking the starting point as you said, yeah, individualize it because of the sickness, work responsibilities, family life, and I think when you touched on the cookie cutter programs, how many of them last a significant length of time more than? you know, nine to 12 weeks of perfect training. Yeah. I, you know, I think there are some out there that are, that are much longer. They're 20 weeks. And, and one of the things with that is, and, and I would love to have, I mean, I want 20 weeks with somebody to train them for a marathon, even if they start out in pretty good shape um, because I don't want to rush it, but that's also a long time. And that's five months that you're focusing on one thing. So one of my jobs, I think is to help keep them motivated and on track and reminding them of, about their motivation. One thing, they came to me. I, I didn't. I didn't walk up to them on on a stranger, you know, on the street and say, "You need to train for a marathon, so do this." Right? They sought me out um, to help them achieve that goal. I, and I, one of my coaching experiences out here was I was coaching for a um, charity program, so it's te- similar to team and training, but for, for a different charity. And we had a lot of people who had never. We're not runners and who want to run a marathon because it was a bucket list thing, and also they wanted to support this charity. And I did that actually for two years, and I really found I didn't like it because I felt like we were rushing some of these people through, and and we had a lot of dropouts. And so I sort of took it on myself of I I, I want a person running consistently for a year before they start thinking about running a marathon. Um, and and I, I say consistently, I don't have a hard and fast rule of that means four times a week, five times a week or anything like that. I, I just want to see some consistency in there. You know, love it. You know, I would probably say the minimum, I think, before you start a marathon training program is probably 
being at like 35 miles a week or some similar amount of time, whatever that may be, um, you know, 300 minutes a week of running. Uh, before we start talking about marathon, I, I have turned away people who, you know, have said, oh, well, I don't run by one or a marathon before my 40th birthday. And I go, when is that? And they go, eight months away. I go, no, I, I'm not the person for you. Um, I, I just think there's too much risk uh, doing a jump like that. And I, I, and some of this is self-serving. I, I don't want someone hiring me who doing that and then they get injured and then, oh, well, Sam injured them. Well, that's not good for my reputation as a coach. Um, athletes are going to get injured. I get that, and I've had some that I've gotten injured, and but I really try to minimize that. And if anything, it's well, I want you getting injured doing good hard stuff, and not just the fact that you went from zero miles to twenty miles a week kind of thing. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> I think even though you're not saying six months, you're kind of repeating what everybody else says. Is first yes. of all, everybody's an individual. Second of all, a goal has to be realistic, not only because, well, I've got eight months, but also taking into account what's your experience, how much training load yep. can you withstand. And that's where a coach is so much better than a cookie cutter coach or I'm sorry, cookie cutter program. I think I, 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 I mean, again, it's a little bit self-serving, right? I, I do. I do charge my clients. So um, I, of course, want to promote coaching. But I think in, in general, even if a person doesn't hire me as a coach, I think that that coaching and that adjusting the training schedule and and some of it, too, is learning what that athlete likes to do. I, I had uh, a woman that I coached for about 18 months through, yeah, through two marathons, and there was a workout she just hated doing. I'd put it on the schedule, and she wouldn't do it. And finally, I asked her. I said, you're not – doing this workout what's on she goes i just find it really hard to do this workout it required her to run two 20-minute efforts at a pretty hard pace with a five-minute break in between and one thing she said was i just i, I start about she's about halfway through it i kind of lose focus and i can't do it. i said oh okay i changed the workout i made it four by 10 minutes rather than two by 20 minutes same thing but I, I was able to adjust it because she just wasn't able to do in that workout by herself wasn't able to concentrate. She didn't have the experience to say, okay, I need to maintain, you know, seven fifteen pace for twenty minutes. After about ten minutes, she her mind wandered off and she would slow down and like, well, okay, I have a simple fix to this. But if you read through that, you know, even a book that may come with a program, a lot of times there's no adjustment in there. What do you do when that athlete or just they just refuse to do it because they don't want to do a hard VO two max workout because they suck, you know? They're hard, <laughs> you know. At the end, you're breathing hard and stuff. But so you figure out, well, how do I do that? How do I get the same result out of that? And you know, hopefully, every coach has a, you know, uh, I, I think of I think of the archer, you know, with the quiver of arrows, and you know, I've got an arrow that I can pull out for this job uh, on there. So um, I think that's one of the advantages the coach has, and also just to walk you through some of the things in a race or a marathon you might not have thought of. That's one of the things of what happens at a marathon, particularly if you go to one of these big city marathons a lot of people like to do, there's a lot of moving parts to this besides just the running. There's, all right, you're going to go through bag check and how soon do you get there? And then, you know, some of the mechanics of that, um, you know, I've helped one one runner who went to New York City. I've never run the New York City Marathon, but I've had enough friends have. I've read enough about it and really walked them through what hotel are you going to stay in? How close is that to the bus that's going to take you out to the start? And so when do you need to be on there? And doing some of that logistical stuff is 
just an added bonus that hopefully I can help somebody out with and they're not, um, you know, kind of floundering around or getting stressed by it because, you know, you got enough stress already without adding logistics into it. And I know, Sam, you mentioned in the first part of our podcast that you've stepped away a little bit from the smarter coaching because of your new position at USA Fencing, although you're still involved. But just to point people again, we'll have a link for this in the show notes. You actually have a post on your blog from late last year, racing part one of your first race. And when I was looking at it, I mean, one of the things that you offered for advice is something that people who are experienced racers would say, well, no kidding. But for somebody who's never <laughs> raced before, but your suggestion is – Put the race number on the on the jersey the night before the race and make sure if there's a transponder, you don't put the pin through it. And yes. for, for people who race regularly, you're going they're thinking, that's a stupid recommendation. But with many people who are running a big race for the first time, you know, if if the New York City is their Olympic game, so to speak, and they're running yeah. the New York City marathon and they don't get an official time, that's heartbreaking. Oh, that would destroy me because you also know that's going to be the fastest time you ever run too is the one that's not recorded, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and actually a little bit of the transponder thing is a fairly you know recent innovation. But honestly, that comes from real-life experience. I, I can't remember what race it was, but I, I, I never did that myself. And the morning of the race, I got up and was going to pin my number on, on the shirt that I was going to wear, and I could not find the race number. And it had just I, – I was traveling with a girlfriend at the time, and I, my race number just had gotten put in her stuff by accident, either in us moving stuff around. So finally, after about 10 minutes of, of you know destroying this hotel room, I found the number. And I at that point in time, I made the decision the night before. Like when I get back from the expo, I if I know what shirt I'm going to wear the next day, I put it on. And also it just – you know it's nice to be able to get up in the morning. You're just ready to go too. So – and yeah, I, that my I, lack of organization taught me that lesson. So. And I think in the last couple of minutes, you've demonstrated why, at least when you're starting and even when you're more advanced, having a coach is important because it's very difficult to look at yourself analytically and say, these are the things I need to do. Or in the case of the uh, runner you described who didn't like to do the 2 by 20 at a relatively high intensity, physiologically, the 4 by 10 is essentially the same, but the cookie yep. cutter program isn't going to show you that. She's going to think that you're giving her special treatment, which you are, to make it more enjoyable yeah. for her, which is going to make you look good as a coach. And it still doesn't affect the quality of training or her meeting her goal. In fact, it makes it more likely because she's actually completing the workout. Yeah, exactly. I my, my, my friend and one of my coaching mentors is a cycling coach named Barney King down in Phoenix. And, and um, Barney has coached some uh, top-level junior and U23 cyclists. And um, he uh, – he has a great line that don't go playing Mr. Potato Head with my training program. And first time I heard this, I thought, Mr. Potato Head. And he goes, yeah, you know, when you get all the parts of Mr. Potato Head just right, he's a handsome devil. But if you start putting the ear in the wrong place, then all of a sudden it's not so pretty anymore. And so his big thing was I will adjust the training schedule because I know what – I know when I want your recovery days and do that. So – you know, if we need to change something, just let me know ahead of time, and I'll adjust it around. And uh, with that, and you know, trying to keep that philosophy that you're trying to do of that, you know, hard and recover kind of idea. You know, easy, hard days. And if 
if you just go moving stuff around, then all of a sudden you may find yourself doing two hard days back to back, which some athletes can do. But for the most part, most of the athletes I coach, I don't want them doing two hard days in a row unless it's a really unique situation. Like they're doing, there's this goofy challenge down at Disney where you run a 5K on Thursday, 10K on Friday, half marathon Saturday, and marathon on Sunday. I have one runner who did this. And, you know, in which case, yeah, she's going to do some back-to-back hard days because she's got to be prepared for that because that's what's going to happen in real life. Um, but let me help, help you with that and part of it. And and I don't want to make this sound dictatorial. I really – it's a collaborative effort with my athletes, but um, I need to know what they're doing as well. I need to know what their schedule is. I ask them to – I use Google Calendar. So I ask them to put in vacation and travel days in the calendar so I can see them coming up, and I will adjust. And some people do well running when they travel. Other people, it's hard to do because they're traveling for business, and maybe the days are really long. And so you know, I want to adjust according to that schedule, and that's, again, one of the things that that cookie-cutter program it doesn't account for. It doesn't – you know, well, 20-miler fell on a day where you know, I'm coming back from you know, Europe. Well, what do you do then? Um, you know, <clears throat> what do you do? So, you know, I can adjust that around and knowing about it ahead of time, I might put the 20 hour before they go. And then their trip to Europe is kind of a recovery, although traveling to Europe is not really recovery. But, you know, I can adjust the training and then when they come back, adjust it for them to, uh, to ease back into it. We have a little bit of an issue here with it. coming back to altitude too. It's a little bit of a tricky thing for some folks as well. That would be an entirely different podcast, I would imagine, just to talk about altitude. Oh, one my one my my old boss Randy Wilbur at the USOC is one of the world's leading experts on altitude, and I learned a lot from him. And we published a couple of papers together on kind of some issues around training at altitude, and um, it's a it's a favorite topic of mine. Yeah. I want to shift gears just for a couple minutes because it's clear one of your loves that you're going to be involved with in all your life is endurance sports. Right now, your main job is working for USA Fencing, and I think you addressed this really well in the first part of the interview where you said, you know, I surround my pe- myself with coaches who understand the fencing, and I stick to the physiology. <laughs> if you could just briefly describe, because – Fencing is not one of those things where you can pick up your local paper and say, hey, there's a fencing tournament next weekend I'm going to do. What's the basic physiology requ- physiological requirement for somebody to be a fencer? Um, I, I would encourage somebody go go to YouTube and find like the Olympic fencing from, um, you know, from Rio and, and watch it. it. It's an incredibly fast sport. I really – I don't know that my eyes have caught up with it yet because – I still need to see some things in slow motion to see what actually happened. Um, it's it's incredibly fast, incredibly quick. Um, the the physiology of it is it, it's a it's an explosive sport. Um, you you need a certain level of endurance only because you're you're having bouts throughout the day. And at one of our national tournaments, you might start about you might start your competition at nine a.m. and you'll finish in the afternoon. You'll you have the bouts are about nine minutes long. Um, the preliminary bouts are pretty short. Um, if the first one to five touches advances, then later on it's 15 touches. And um, basically, you know, that's you're whacking your opponent 15 times. And um, so it, it, it's very explosive. It's also got some fine motor unit stuff in the hands. The movements on the hands and the fingers are actually pretty small. 
I've taken a few fencing lessons to get my get a feel for it, and my movements are really big compared to somebody who's really good. It's really a small hand movement. Um, it's been described as 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 sort of chess on a strip because it's very tactical, very tactical, and um, you're trying to figure out how am I going to you know get my blade on my opponent and keep my opponent's blade off of me. So the strategy and the tactic part of it are, is really huge. And um, it, even my little bit of limited one, it's very fatiguing mentally because you're, you're, all the stuff is running through your mind about how to do this. Um, so some of the strength and conditioning for that is explosive movements, um, flexibility, um, you know, injury prevention, it's a it's a sport where you have a dominant side. So if you are right-handed, you'll be in a certain position, and certain muscle groups are going to get overused. So trying to make sure you balance that out to reduce risk of injury from that imbalance. Um, so it it's a really different from a physiology standpoint. And really, there's not been a ton of studies done with it. it. It's really hard to study those quick explosive sports because things happen so fast, and they're really harder to measure. Versus marathon training is we know tons about the physiology of it because it's really easy to study it. Um, you know, again, with fencing, there's some, you know, typically the, the better fencers tend to be tall, long arms, you know, better reach. But there are some fencers out there who are who are petite. Um, one of our top uh, uh, female fencers is a very petite woman, and yet she is a world champion. So, um, so it's kind of a sport that, that lends itself to – uh, all body sizes and, um, and abilities. While fencing is an individual sport, if you're really aggressive, I think it's a good one for you. Um, there's a little bit of a team element in that we do have team competitions of three people against three other people. And there's a club element to it too. So you do get that social interaction part of it as well. But when you're on the strip, you're on the strip. It's you. So I guess one of the questions we want to ask then is, are we going to see you in a fencing tournament or have you taken lessons just so you understand the activity? I, I, I have taken lessons and I'm going to, in a couple of weeks, the next set of lessons come up and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take those. I, I, I found it really enjoyable. Um, my coworkers kind of, I, I originally did it because I did want to learn at least enough about it to have a little bit of a feel for what goes on. But I, I find it interesting. A tournament, I don't know about that yet. Not not sure. If so, it will be a very low-key local tournament that I'm not going to tell anybody about until it's over with because um, I have a feeling I'm going to get my butt kicked. And um, I have enough of an ego that I don't really want the world knowing I have my butt kicked. So. We've been fortunate enough to talk with Sam Callen. Sam is the uh, coach, USA Fencing Coach Educator. That's quite a mouthful. Just like <laughs> everybody else we've interviewed for Moving to Live, not only is he very serious about his job and his training, but he is a participant in the activities that he coaches and trains in. If you've listened to the second part of the interview when we ask, you know, what's your recommendation for somebody who gets involved in something? I think you could sum it up with volunteer, take advantage yes. of the opportunities, and don't be too big to do anything. And he described basically wiping up blood from uh, blood sticks in a study. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll say another one. One of my jobs at USA Cycling, I travel with our team. Uh, one of the things I did was I did some video data analysis kinds of things. Um, I, I think learning how to use a video is becoming bigger and bigger. 
Um, Dartfish is a big power player in, in that world. Uh, but one of my jobs also was I fill water bottles, you know, and, you know, that was my job. I, I, I drove people to, to and from the airport because I had a training session. The exercise physiologist is a pretty expendable person. Most of my stuff was done after, you know, doing data analysis after the training session was over with. If somebody needed to be picked up at the airport, I took the car and I went and got them and brought them to the, you know, to the training site. Um, so if you're going to work in sport, um, there are times where you're going to be, you know, carrying bags on and off of, you know, buses and doing things like that. And that's that's just a part of the expectation of doing it. I've, you know, seen you know, really high-level, highly respected people stand in line to take two bags to take into the hotel or into the venue because everybody has to pitch in and do that. You know, college Division One teams and NFL teams have enough staff on hand where people don't have to do that. The, the Olympic sports world is not like that at all. It's uh, it, a lot of times it's a shoestring budget operation, and um, so everybody has to kind of pitch in and do multiple jobs and be willing to step up and help out. We've got some good information and some good advice from San Callen, who's involved with USA Fencing. He's also got a really nice website on Smarter Coaching with some nice blog posts if you're interested in the endurance world. Sam, I know you've got a lot of things going on. I appreciate you being willing to be interviewed by Moving to Live. Ben, it's been a pleasure, and, and good luck with the podcast. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, uh, to hearing more from you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.